This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you. Uh, certainly Tim Hortons, uh, a very uh, well-liked and trusted Canadian brand. A lot of Canadians rely on uh, Tim Hortons for the daily caffeine fix, maybe just for a snack or lunch. Uh, but Tim Hortons is a very successful business in this country. Uh, like a lot of other businesses, Tim Hortons has developed an app and has really pushed this app on consumers. You want to play Roll Up the Rim? Well, you need the app. You want to win uh, you know, free drinks and, and, uh, and snacks? Use the app. And so Tim Hortons has, has been aggressive in pushing their app. How have they been using this app, though? So uh, a troubling finding today uh, from the Privacy Commissioners of Alberta, B.C., Quebec, and their federal counterpart. Finding that Tim Hortons violated privacy law by collecting vast amounts of location data from customers. The people who downloaded that app have their movements tracked and recorded every few minutes of every day, even when the app was not open. If it was on your phone, they had access to that information. So why? Would Tim Hortons be operating this way? And, and how did it take so long for all of this to come to light? Well, we had a pretty good indication of the problem uh, two years ago when our next guest first broke this story. The headline, Double Double Tracking, How Tim Hortons Knows Where You Sleep, Work, and Vacation. James McLeod, technology reporter for the Financial Post, National Post. His story from June 16th, of la- uh, two years ago, 2020. Prompted this investigation, blew the story wide open. So joining us to talk about what we now know and the findings uh, released today, very pleased to welcome the program, the aforementioned James McLeod, uh, FinancialPost.com, and his latest on this as well. James, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Must be a little surreal at some level, I suppose, to kind of be at the center of what is, I think, a pretty big scandal, dare I say. I mean, just just your thoughts on on how big this all became. Um, Well, Honestly, at this point, it's just really gratifying to have um, this report from all of these privacy commissioners sort of Mm -hmm. speaking with one voice and really speaking quite strongly about the issues raised by this illegal location tracking by Tim Hortons. But the other side of it is there's of of the stuff that, that they found in their report, basically all of it. I reported two years ago in the Financial Post, and I I think that speaks to a thing that we need to really work on as Canadians, because technology moves fast, and and like two years to sort of do an investigation, come up with these findings. As a country, we've got to get a lot better, more nimble about dealing with this stuff. Yeah, no kidding. So yeah, it took that long to to come to the conclusion that that seemed pretty obvious when you know people read your work a couple of years ago. Where, what's your sense, by the way, of what happens now in terms of penalties for Tim Hortons, or, or how it's going to change how they they do business with their app? So uh, th- this was one of those classic situations where 
I got a hold of the data. I started reporting it out as a journalist. Once I had all of all of my information confirmed, I, I knew how they were tracking um, users using uh, location data on their phones. I reached out to them for comment. And basically immediately, within days, they changed languages, uh, language in the app. They said, okay, we're stopping doing this. Uh, it was one of those things where they insisted they'd really not done nothing wrong at first, but then they, they shut it all down. So the good news is the company says they haven't been doing this kind of location tracking since June of 2020, very shortly after the Post published the story and the privacy commissioner said they were investigating it. Uh, And they've, they've said they're taking steps to sort of develop a more rigorous privacy uh, regime within Tim Hortons. But the thing we heard today at the, the Privacy Commissioner's News Conference was they're pretty sure there are other companies that are doing exactly this kind of thing. I, I mean, it's it's worth going on your phone and seeing which apps have location permission and also thinking about all of the apps that have access to all of your photos and all of the uh, apps that have access to other sort of sensitive data on your phone. Uh, they may be using it in any number of ways. And one of the big sort of lessons out of all of this is that it's very difficult to see what's going on behind the curtain once they have access to that data. Like the, the, the core thing that, that Tim Hortons was doing that was so creepy to me was they were checking your location in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, at, at times when you didn't have the app open, and they were using those location data points to infer correctly, in my case. They, they figured out where I lived because, you know, well, he's in the same place at 3 in the morning a bunch of nights. That's probably a good hint that he lives there. You know, they, they figured out where my desk was in the office building that I worked in, and they, they were sort of tracking me every time I went into a Starbucks or McDonald's or any of Tim Horton's competitors. Oh, he's going there. He's going, maybe we, uh, and they didn't seem to use this data a whole lot, according to the privacy commissioner's report. They never really got into the targeted ads and stuff. But the big takeaway is if companies have access to a trove of data, they can just start doing stuff with it and, you really won't know about that because all of that is just happening behind the scenes on the server somewhere. And the, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to see. No kidding. By the way, and you mentioned, you know, the location data and, and look, when we download apps and, and we all do it, right. You just, you, you, and you know, we agree to all these things and we often don't maybe read it as fully as we should or think twice about what we're agreeing to. But even here it found that, that even though there's, there's a permission that has to be granted with regard to location data, uh, maybe Tim Wardens was it misleading, or they weren't forthcoming? What was the issue there? Well, so they were they were they outright didn't tell the truth. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there was a, a, a FAQ thing on their um, their their app that said, you know, we'll only check your location when the app is is open, and that that was just not happening. And uh, it's uh, uh, with a lot of these things, and one of the things that um, I think it was the BC Privacy Commissioner there were few of them speaking, so I'm mixing up who said what. Right. But I, I, I really think a thing that people should take away from this is it's wrong to put the blame on the end users. These are really complicated systems that are deliberately designed in a way that is, it's not clear what's happening behind the scenes, and the language is often vague and confusing. And if, like, 
it, it shouldn't be on you and I to consent and say it's okay to, to, to use my information in this way and that way. Like, there's, there's no world, in, and this was one of the findings of these privacy pushers, there's no world in which a, a coffee app should legitimately be, like, gathering this much location data and, and making these inferences about it. And, like, user consent to me isn't the issue. It's, it's just there's, there's certain things that are just like a, a vast overreach. Grab all the data you can and do whatever you want with it. And if, if we want people to trust technology, if we want to enjoy the benefits of technology, apps, you know, all of, all of the things we love our phones for, we need to be able to trust that. And that, right. that means just saying some of this stuff isn't on. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you mentioned how they were tracking your, your location. And you learned all of this because you managed to, to get your hands on the data, five months worth of data. So 2,700 times in those five months, uh, they checked your location. But talk about how you were able to, to get that data in the first place. So Canada's, um, w- one of the cool things about Canada's privacy law um, it's it's called Tipito, which is an acronym that I'm gonna. I always forget the names of uh, what it stands for. But Personal Information it, Protection and Electronic Documents Act. Yeah, that's yes. that's right. It's it's called Tipito. It's privacy law, and none of the P's stand for privacy. It's very right. weird. Yes. Um, but in that law, it specifically says any organization that holds data on you, personally identified data about you you can send them an email and say, I want to see everything you've got. And they are required by law to send it to you. And so I, I got an inkling that the, uh, I was covering, you know, technology for the financial post. And, you know, I, I knew a little bit about the ins and outs of the law. Um, so when I got a notification on my phone that sort of suggested that the app was checking my location in the background, I filed one of these requests and got this, this very large trove of data and I, I mean, I credit to Tim Hortons. What they gave me, like very clearly, sort of was all of the data data they have had on me, and it, it sort of painted a, a very clear picture. I I did also request all of my data from you know Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, McDonald's, and some other companies that I had apps, and they sent me much less. And I'm not sure if that means that they actually have much less or, again, like it's it's hard to know what's behind the curtain. It's very, it's not like you can appeal the decision. There's there's not really a whole process for that. So I, I think Tim Hortons gave us a unique window into what companies are doing. And from these privacy commissioners report, we can, they're saying, yes, there are other companies out there that we expect are doing this, but having visibility into that is very difficult. Right. So Tim Hortons had the data. And, and, and I ask it this way because obviously Tim Hortons didn't develop their own app. You know, there's, there's a company that did that for them. But, but to whom does the data actually belong then? So um, they, like, that also gets fairly complicated because mm-hmm. Tim Hortons had their app. They were then transmitting this data to another company, an American company called Radar Labs, where their whole thing is exactly this. Um, like Tim Hortons basically just bolted a Radar Labs module into their app that was doing all this data collection. And then Radar was uh, generating these, what they call events, every time you leave your home, every time you enter your workplace, every time you go into a competitor 
um, every time you go traveling, every more than 200 kilometers from your home, that, that would register as an event. The, the privacy commissioner's report said that for each user, um, the, um, and, and they had something like 1.6 million users on the Tim Hortons app. They were getting like 10 events a day. So just, you know, all of these, uh, like taking all of these location, um, data, all the raw data and processing it through radar labs. And the reason that's important is because one of the things that uh, the privacy commissioners were quite critical about is the contract language there was a little bit loose. So you've got this other American company that has all of this geographic data. You and I never signed a terms of uh, terms and conditions with radar labs, but they're holding our data. They're processing our data. They may, well, who knows, be passing it on to someone else. And like, as soon as it leaves your phone, you know, who knows where it's gone. Do we know if this, this information was sold? Like, you know, I mean, it's the question of what Tim Horton's doing with this information, but if they're making it available to, to other parties, that, that's, that's a bigger issue there too. What, what do we know about that? Well, well and we, so our best understanding is that um, the information, uh, all of this location data wasn't, was, it was provided to Radar Labs as sort of a contractual uh, relationship where they were a service provider to Tim Hortons. And there's no evidence that it was then sold on to somebody else, but there's also really no way of knowing that. Uh, so that's just a big question mark. But we don't, no one is sort of outright saying we think that's what happened. Um, the other thing to say about this is that Tim Horton says they never really use this data. Like they just scooped it all up and, and they did some sort of like aggregated analytics to sort of, you know, make marketing decisions, but they were never really doing like targeted advertising, you know, individual offers for you right. in the Tim Horton's app or anything like that. And when you read the, the final report from these privacy commissioners, it does sort of read like, they were just kind of scooping up all of this data because they figured it would be valuable and they figure out how to use it later. And, and that is a really common practice where it's just like grab everything you can. Surely it'll be valuable and we'll figure out how to sort of turn it into, you know, a benefit to the business later. And that's, that's a really bad way to operate. You know, got to end. No kidding. Well, kudos to you for your work on this, James. Uh, much more is mentioned, financialpost.com. And uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much for having me on. All the best, James. Take care. Uh, James McLeod, technology reporter for the Financial Post, National Post. Uh, again, you can read, uh, read his coverage of all of this, financialpost.com. Uh, and yeah, it was uh, June of 2020 that his articles on this started to appear. And that's what prompted these privacy commissioner investigations. And so here we are today, the privacy commissioner is concluding that, yes, indeed, privacy law was violated here. So pretty significant finding. We'll, we'll see where this all goes from here. We're simply saying uh, that we are uh, freezing the market and in the future it'll not be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns in Canada. There have been too many tragedies. Canadians need to see safer communities and this is uh, a comprehensive, multi-step path towards that. Okay, well, why? there are some, some heady claims there. Uh, look, obviously safe communities. I mean, who doesn't want safe communities? And yeah, it's true that in recent years, we've seen an uptick in, in gun violence in this country. So there's some concern there, and, and certainly some of it's justified. 
I mean, overall, Canada remains a, a safe country, but, you know, we, we shouldn't take anything for granted either. Uh, but there's also the question of, okay, what, what is the government identifying as the problem here? And how are they going about solving that problem? So the prime minister talks about a freeze on handgun sales. Okay, how is that addressing the problem? To what extent is the legal sale of handguns in Canada a part of this problem we've identified? I mean, if it is part of the problem, is freezing enough of a step? And if it's not a problem, then why are we doing this? And it is an interesting contrast because, yes, handguns are the most frequently used firearm in gun crime. They are also the most strictly regulated firearm in this country. So what's actually at issue here? Anyway, look, there, there are some legitimate areas where I think we need to, to focus, and, and there's certainly some reasonable debates we can have about the best approach here. But how much of this is political? And, and our next guest has some concern along those lines. An interesting op-ed in the National Post today, uh, in his view that the liberals seem to be opting for wedge politics over actual change. And is that the path we really want to go down, This where this becomes uh, a wedge issue, a culture war issue, a political club? How do we assess the situation in Canada without being too distracted by the debate south of the border? Well, Noah Schwartz is an assistant professor of political science at Concordia University. He's written extensively about gun laws and gun culture in both Canada and the U.S. He's got a book coming out later this year. It's called On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, and the NRA. As mentioned, his piece in the National Post today, nationalpost.com. Professor Schwartz, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the debates in Canada and the U.S. are are very different in a lot of ways. Clearly, I think what's happened recently in the United States has, you know, spilled over and and maybe affected uh, the debate here, or at least the government's announcement this week. What do you see as, first of all, the connections between, you know, what goes on in in the U.S. and what happens here? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a couple of connections. Um, So on the the one level, on the practical level, um, there's the connection of the illicit flow of firearms from south of the border. Um, And that's sort of the more tangible connection with the most tangible effect uh, on the Canadian public. Um, Because we do uh, do know that there is a large flow of illegal firearms, especially handguns, which are very concealable, from the United States to Canada. um, And that these are often the weapons used um, by criminal gangs, which are sort of driving the rise in uh, in gun-related crime in Canada. Um, on the other hand, uh, on the more ideological end, the gun debate, I think what's happening in the United States definitely has a lot of um, ramifications on the political culture in Canada, mm-hmm. um, and it drives a lot of policymaking here. I, obviously, policies are very different between Canada and the United States, although, you know, I mean, certainly there's difference among the 50 states. But in your view, how different is the debate or even how different is just the overall gun culture in the two countries? It's completely different. Um, it, it is really night and day. I mean, if you look at it from a regulatory point of view, uh, you have states um, where the only uh, you know real gun control is that which is at the, the federal level. Um, so that's simply a background check at point of purchase. If you're buying through a federally regulated uh, gun dealer, um, they do not. There are many states where, where private sales are unregulated, and, and it's very difficult to regulate private sales in the United States because they don't have a licensing system in most states. Um, so really, uh, in, in some states, it's, you know, for lack of a better term, the Wild West with regards to gun control. There are some states that do have stricter gun control, but once again, they have a hard time keeping illegal guns out of those states because um, of, of the different uh, flows and pipelines that, uh, that criminals have. 
And I mean, you know, even just when it comes to gun culture, and I don't know how one, one quantifies that, but it just feels like the conversation is entirely different in the United States or just the way gun ownership is perceived, the reasons why people own guns. That, that seems like it's night and day, too. Oh, 100%. Um, so uh, to give you a bit of background on my research, so I've done research on firearms policy and with gun owners uh, in both the United States and in Canada. Um, so I have a really good window into the comparison between the two gun cultures. Um, in the United States, when you talk to American gun owners, if you ask them why they own guns, um, the overwhelming majority are going to say for self-defense. Uh, in Canada, that's not, a, first of all, not a legal or legitimate reason to own firearms, according to the RCMP. Um, in Canada, uh, people own guns for sports shooting or for collecting. Um, the other thing, when you talk to Americans, you ask them, what do guns mean to you? What kind of values uh, do guns elicit for you? The first thing that, that most American gun owners will say is sort of freedom or liberty. In Canada, you ask people that question, and they'll answer responsibility. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about uh, the family or friendship connections that they have through their community of sports shooters. So in Canada, it's really about sport um, and, and competition and recreation. Uh, in the United States, it's more driven out of concerns about self-defense um, and about sort of concerns regarding freedom or individual liberty. So with all of that as the backdrop, it brings us to the announcement this week. And, and this legislation does does touch on numerous uh, areas of, of gun regulation. But most notable is this idea of a freeze on handguns, uh, you know, trying to freeze in place the current status quo, which is, uh, um, I suppose, somewhat of an odd approach if one thinks about it. I mean, first of all, what, what did you make of that? Well, I've been studying firearms policy for over six years now, um, and I, I haven't yet come across another policy that, that's like it uh, in terms of a freeze. Um, to me, it, it sounds like I think it, it's a bit more of a political strategy. Um, and I think the timing of the announcement um, gives us a little bit of a clue about that um, with regards to what, what's happening in the United States. I think Canadians are feeling a lot of very legitimate outrage and sadness over what happened in the United States. I know I did, you know, watching the news, oh, sure. it's just yeah. devastating. Um, but we, and many Canadians also don't really understand the nuances and the differences between gun laws in Canada and the United States, how difficult it is to legally purchase a, a handgun in Canada to go through the licensing process. So I think, I think the government saw an opportunity, um, what we call it in the study of public policy, an agenda window, um, in where they can introduce this legislation that they want to introduce, and then they'll have a lot of public support because of, of that anger and that frustration. They know Canadians, like, we feel powerless. We can't change what's happening down south. Um, but, you know, making this announcement gives Canadians sort of a, a sense of control in some ways. Right. And it is sort of, the, I don't know if it's a paradox, but it's an interesting contrast in, in Canada because most guns used in gun crimes are handguns. And yet handguns are probably the most strictly regulated type of firearm in the country. No, that's correct. Um, so if you want uh, to get a handgun license in Canada, uh, you have to take, you know, a two and a half day course. Um, there's a number of fees involved. Uh, you go through not only, you know, an initial background check, but your name is put in, in the CPIC system. So you receive continuous eligibility screening. So your name is constantly run through the system to make sure, you know, you don't do anything that would disqualify you from, from being able to own guns. Um, you're, there are safe storage requirements for how you have to store your gun. There's tra- really strict transportation requirements. So there's a lot of regulation around handguns in Canada. Um, and only about 600,000 Canadians are, are licensed to own handguns. Um, 
The problem is we share the world's longest undefended border with the country with the largest supply of handguns and, and, and firearms in civilian hands. There's also been trends in the United States as concealed carry laws have expanded since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trend is towards smaller and more concealable guns that people are buying there, um, which are even easier to smuggle than, than handguns normally. Um, you know, you think about the amount of people and goods that cross the U.S.-Canadian border every day um, and, and the difficulty that we have controlling the illicit trade and other things that are moving across the border, like drugs. Um, it's, you know, as easy, if not easier, to smuggle uh, firearms than it is to smuggle drugs. Um, and then these, you know, smugglers are, are very, very innovative in their approach. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it really is that pipeline of guns uh, from the south uh, that, 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 you know, we don't have perfect data on this, but the limited data that we have shows that that's what's really driving this. Well, and, and I mean, part of this legislation does touch on the issue of smuggling. So I, I don't want to say that the government's ignoring it altogether, but it, it seems like maybe that should be our primary focus. And, and honestly, it seems like this is the kind of issue where you could get some political consensus. And I, I, I don't know if the government's interested in, in political consensus at the moment, though. Yeah, I think so. The problem with with the border enforcement, and I think it's great that there they, there are announcements for more investment in the borders. I think you're right that that is an area where we can kind of get bipartisan support um, behind it. Um, but I think there are there are real limits to, to what we're able to do at the border. Just the you know the sheer volume of, of cross border traffic between Canada and the United States, the sheer scale, the size of the border, um, the idea that we can can seal that off. I think. Um, is not uh, not very realistic. Um, I think where we need to focus our efforts, and I think this is an area where we can build real bipartisan um, bipartisan compromise, um, is in really focusing our support on, on the communities that are most impacted by gun violence. So we know that a lot of gun violence is happening in large urban centers where you have large groups of especially young men um, who feel left out of society. They feel left out of, of progress. They feel left out of the housing market, right? They feel a lot of financial pressures um, and that they're turning to gangs and the illicit drug trade to be able to meet those needs. Um, so if we can do work um, to focus on social issues like housing affordability, um, like putting people into good jobs, getting job training for people in these um, marginalized communities and for diverting people from criminal gangs. Um, and there's a lot of really good groups already doing this. I think that's where we're going to see the most bang for our buck. And in terms of this becoming a wedge issue or even kind of a culture war issue here, because you know, up until recently, it didn't seem like there were really significant differences between liberals and conservatives. You know, there, there seems to be just a general consensus among Canadians, as you noted, that, you know, more or less, you know, we, we've got the right balance when it comes to gun laws. What are your concerns, though, that if this is going to become more of that kind of a wedge issue? Yeah, no, that's really interesting because um, if you look at the history of gun control in Canada, for a long time, it was a pretty bipartisan issue. Kim Campbell, a progressive conservative, brought in a lot of the gun laws that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, I think there was a lot of bipartisan consensus uh, back then. Um, since the long gun registry, that was really one of the things that turned uh, gun politics into a wedge issue. Yeah. Um, and we saw, for, for example, the conservatives, the Harper government using that fairly successfully as a wedge issue. And then sort of Trudeau, since he's been in power, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, using that as a, a wedge issue as well. Um, I think the, the real danger of that, number one, uh, obviously we're living at a time where political polarization between left and right um, is getting worse. Uh, polarization between urban uh, Canadians and rural Canadians um, is getting worse. Uh, and we really need to be focusing on bridging divides rather than exploiting them through wedge issues. Um, so I, I think that there's a danger that uh, the, the sort of east-west divide and the urban-rural divide um, could be worsened by policies like this.
That's a good point. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. As mentioned, uh, you're op-ed. It's up at uh, nationalpost.com, exploring some of these issues. And uh, we mentioned as well the forthcoming book on Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, in the NRA. Noah Schwartz, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you so much for having me on. There you go. That's Noah Schwartz, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Concordia University. His uh, forthcoming book on Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, in the NRA. There's hope because there's flair, and today's decision only further cements that flair is here to stay. Well, look, Stephen Jones may be a New Zealander, but the company of which he is the CEO is apparently Canadian. So today, the Canadian Transportation Agency, uh, with its final verdict on this whole uncertainty around Flair Airlines, would they be Canadian enough to continue to operate in Canada? Now, this all came about not too long ago, right? And, and some questions about Flair's uh, ownership structure. Now, Flair's argument was that, look, we didn't get the bailouts that our big competitors got. We need to define some funding to keep us uh, operating through these really tough months uh, of COVID. Uh, so it was about our survival. But obviously, we have pretty strict rules around foreign ownership in our airline sector. And so there was the question as to whether Flair would be allowed to keep operating. If they were deemed to be not Canadian enough then they would lose that operating license. And just the uncertainty, you know, hanging over an airline and people booking trips, not knowing whether the airline was going to keep operating, you know, that was problematic. Now, their CEO insisted that, look, Flair is here to stay. We're not going anywhere. We're going to figure this out. So some really good news for the airline today. Uh, The Canadian Transportation Agency, having reviewed this ownership structure and some of the changes they've tried to make recently, it's good enough. They can continue operating. And so those who have booked flights via Flair, good news for them. And probably big picture, I mean, this is good for consumers to have maybe a little additional competition in the airline industry. So we've got Flair, we've got Lynx Air that has launched, uh, you know, to go up against, you know, the big two, obviously, uh, Air Canada and WestJet. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on this whole saga, the conclusion uh, we've now finally reached today. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, close observer of the airline industry in this country, Carl Moore, associate professor of the Desautel Faculty of Management at McGill University. Uh, professor Moore, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Uh, and any surprise on your part, first of all? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, looking back, and, and I've talked to some people in the press, including yourselves a while ago, saying that in Canada... There's not a lot of competition. It's really Air Canada and WestJet, a bit Transat, a bit Porter, but there's not a lot of competition, and there's not a lot of ultra-low-cost carriers. So from a viewpoint of Ottawa, they would like this to go forward, that they would like the CTA to allow them uh, to stay around. Because if they had ruled that they weren't allowed to stay around, people rightly would go, hey, you're just reducing competition even less in a place that's not as competitive as the U.S., the Europe, or Asia. So it's something where I think there, you know, that was the, the issue that they wanted to be sensitive to. On the other hand, as Air Canada and WestJet rightly pointed out, they had broken the rules. And so they needed to fix that. As you were talking about the introduction, is the worst time in aviation history. Now, it doesn't go back to the Roman Empire, but aviation <laughs> started, you know, with overwrite, so, it, you know, it's a little over 100 years old. But even 9-11, I've talked to CEOs of big airlines, 9-11 was not as bad as this. Mm-hmm. So it was down 90, 95%, and it was just incredibly tough times. 
But as we're coming out of that, and things are starting to look good, I've flown a bit recently to California, New York, to Singapore, and so on, they're full flights. And and when you look at the the flights that are out there, most of them, the load levels, that number of bums on seats, the percentage of seats filled, is quite good right now. Because people, there's a pent-up demand, people who kept their jobs probably have some money available for travel, and so people are out there traveling, and it's returning not to the same levels of pre-pandemic, but it's looking pretty good at this point. So I think their condition changed in the last couple months. It was easier to get investors and people on board because, frankly, just looked like a more attractive industry and a more attractive company. So the question of what constitutes a Canadian airline, so broadly speaking, that only Canadian-owned airlines can operate domestic routes in Canada. So what, what does it mean to be a Canadian airline? Well, at least 51% of domestic airlines' voting shares must be Canadian. And no more than 25% of voting shares can be held by a single non-Canadian company or person. And that's where Miami-based 777 Partners, you know, um, was in trouble. Or, you know, more fundamentally, Flair was. And so what they've done is get more Canadians on the board. So that gives it controlled by Canadians because it's controlled, you know, directors are uh, Canadians. So that makes it uh, more fitting with that. It's also that they're not going to have any unique shareholder rights, 777 partners out of Florida. So what it's doing is that it's changed its management structure with the agreement 777, obviously. And and 777, to their credit, have been somewhat flexible, but in, in one point, you, you know, you don't have a lot of choice. That if you want to continue investing in the Canadian industry, you've got to follow the rules. I think there was an interim period where the CTA said, look, you've got to fix this. <clears throat> Sorry, those are the rules. Yeah. Um, do it. And they gave it some time to do it. At the same time, the industry improved. So the timing was fortuitous, and I think the CTA... Uh, saw that, as did Flair, and it allowed them to give them a bit of time to sort it out, which they did. It's good news for Canadians, and it's particularly good news for Albertans because it flies out of Alberta, um, and it flies to some second-tier airports like Hamilton and so on, where it's not Pearson and Toronto, but it's Hamilton. Uh, but it's something where you may well want to go to Hamilton because you're on the west side of Toronto and you know in a big uh, population area, uh, and it's a lot cheaper. So it's something where they're servicing some second-tier airports which get less service than Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and that makes it better for Canadians. And the price, it's a low-cost carrier, uh, where you're going to get a great price, but you're not going to have meal. You're not going to maybe have bags on board and so on. But that's something we, we understand that, and uh, particularly once you've flown it once or twice, you get the point. And you go, okay, I'll take a backpack, uh, I'll bring my own uh, meal, I'll buy it at the airport or bring it from home, but I want to go and be, and, and be frugal, which appeals to a lot of Canadians, open the doors for a lot of middle-class and lower-class Canadians economically to be able to travel in a way they couldn't before. Was there a need to be flexible here? I mean, you know, Flair was facing a crisis. You talked about how hard this was on the airline industry. And look, 777 Partners didn't completely take over Flair Airlines, but obviously this was an important cash lifeline for, for this company to stay oh, yeah, operating, yeah. right? Absolutely. You know, and, and they probably would not be here if it wasn't for 777 Partners. And, you know, we have to appreciate that as Canadians and cut them a bit of slack. But certain point, uh, the, you know, they got to follow the rules, and they gave them some time to be able to uh, allow things to improve and be able to get on and find other investors and other ways of, of uh, making sure it was uh, copacetic. 
And I, I mean, it's pretty clear that's not going to change anytime soon. I know there have been some who just said, we'll open it up. Let Delta or Southwest come in and, and fly, you know, Toronto to Vancouver. It's like that, that's that's not in the cards. And I think this is no, a clear not. indication. No, it's something of where that. they're going to protect Air Canada and WestJet. Probably they want to have airlines which are controlled in Canada rather than in the U.S. or Europe or whatever, where they want to. We have the second largest country in the world after Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's not including Ukraine. Uh, you know they have a huge country, and we have a huge country. And you don't want to drive from Toronto to Edmonton, right? You know where you want to fly, and Vancouver to St. John's. Like, give me a break. It, it, we it measured in a week, ten days of, of exhausting driving to get there. So it's something where we have a big country, small population. We need to have a viable airline industry, which serves small cities, which serves Canadians' needs, and we're not confident they're going to do that out of Atlanta if you're Delta or out of, you know, uh, American Airlines, out of Dallas or wherever. So does it feel like we're sort of in a new status quo here where we've got the two big players, uh, we've got the upstarts, we've got Flair, we've got Lynx Air. I mean, is, is the field pretty full at this point? Well, it's interesting. I, I visited WestJet. I've interviewed the last four CEOs. And out in WestJet, they have a bunch of, uh, they had at least in the past, in the head office, a bunch of um, posters, you know, and frames of lists of Canadian airlines that have gone bankrupt. You know, and I'm old enough to remember most of them. And you go, boy, a lot of Canadian airlines have come and gone in our lifetime. Um, so it would be nice if, like, uh, Porter's not a discount airline. It really has the Toronto Pearson, yeah, Air, you know, the uh, Island Airport. And it's hanging in there, though it's privately held. So we're not entirely sure how it does. Uh, though WestJet is privately held by Jerry Schwartz and Onyx, so we don't know how they're doing. Um, so it's good that we have more competition. But I think it's good that we have Air Canada, WestJet, and Transat, and Flair in Canada run by Canadians. I think it's probably a good public policy thing for Canada to have. I'll leave it there. Uh, always appreciate the insight. Professor Moore, thanks for joining us here today. Always a pleasure. Talk thanks again. again. Carl Moore, Associate Professor de Santel, Faculty of Management, McGill University, veteran observer of the airline industry in this country. His reaction to this decision today, uh, that Flair can stay. That Flair is Canadian, or at least Canadian enough, uh, that they can continue operating in Canada. <laughs> Welcome back. Today is June 1st, and today is the day that Calgary's new harassment bylaw takes effect. Now, this was something approved by City Council back in March. It amends the existing bylaw uh, with regard to street harassment. Uh, So it it makes some things clear in terms of what's considered harassment. There is now a $500 fine that falls under this bylaw. So I think a lot of questions about what this encompasses, how this is all going to work. So to, to try to address some of that, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Calgary Street Bylaw Officer with Calgary Community Standards, Ryan Placatus, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Ryan, appreciate you making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me. Okay, so today is the day that, that takes effect. This bylaw takes effect uh, as of today, correct? You bet. Okay, so what does it mean then in terms of, you know, from, from your department's perspective, just making sure there's kind of some awareness, sure. uh, how you're going to approach this in, in the early days, first of all? Yeah, uh, well, uh, just to take a step back, we have made an amendment to our public behavior bylaw, mm-hmm. 
which essentially now creates an offense for somebody to harass another person in, in public spaces. So what does that actually mean? I'll, I'll read you the definition from the bylaw because it's pretty clear. Harass means to communicate with a person in a manner that could reasonably cause offense or humiliation, including conduct, comment, or action that refers to a person's race, religious beliefs, disability, age, place of origin, marital status, source of income, family status, gender, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, and includes a sexual solicitation or advance. So the scope of the bylaw is, is quite broad and it's designed to deal with a number of different actions or behaviors that could constitute harassment in city, uh, city streets or city uh, public places. But really, I want to underscore the importance of this, and really that's to send a message that Calgary is a safe and welcoming place for all citizens. Uh, it's a city where we celebrate our diversity, and it really outlines what type of behaviors or actions shouldn't be tolerated. And I think that this uh, bylaw is a good starting point for serving that purpose. Right. So part of it is about sending a message, right, and sort of establishing standards for how we want our city to be or expectations about how, how people are to be treated. And, and maybe that's the point of a lot of bylaws, right? It's about a message about community standards. So th- that is part of this then. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Um, in terms of the enforcement, now there's a $500 fine. Is, is that an automatic $500 fine or, or how, how does it work on the enforcement side? Well, I think like with with uh, and how we enforce all of our bylaws that if our peace officers receive a complaint, it's important to understand contextual factors that surround that complaint. We look at who was the person that uh, said what was said. Um, look at actually what was said. What was the intention behind that? Was there a relationship between two parties? And we gather evidence to see if the conduct or the actions matches the definition of harassment under our bylaw, and then take the appropriate action, again, based on contextual factors. Now, you know, for example, if we're dealing with a young person, there might be a teachable moment, and we might have our peace officers work with parents or educators to try to correct that behavior. Um, We we deal lots with our unhoused community and vulnerable populations where they're dealing with issues around mental health and mental illness, Um, you know, where we might challenge our peace officers to work with social services partners to provide support or find alternative solutions other than issuing tickets. But I do think that there are situations where, you know, and if we use warnings as educational tool, I mean, as an example, if somebody is just racist and they are uttering um, racial slurs towards somebody based on their ethnicity, then I don't see the value in in, um, warning that individual. And, And on the surface, that person is likely to receive a ticket if an offense can be proven. Right. And, and like you said, I mean, some cases might seem more blatant or more obvious, but, you know, as you read the wording of the bylaw, something that could reasonably cause offense or humiliation, it, it's somewhat subjective. I mean, are we going to be putting bylaw officers or other officials in, in a situation where they're going to have to review a certain statement that was made? One person sees it as harassment, the other says, no, it's not. I mean, how are we going to objectively settle those kinds of disputes? Well, I mean, the onus is on us to prove that somebody has committed an offense. So we, we look at, um, you know, the elements of the offense. Again, look at what the definition states. Uh, and then try to, uh, while I recognize it's somewhat subjective, we try to apply objective standards to make that determination. Again, looking at what exactly was said. Um, was it intended to humiliate somebody? 
um, you know, looking at the, the other circumstances surrounding that and, and then making that judgment call. And sometimes, you know, we have to consult with our, our um, law department and, and our prosecutors and, um, you know, get their input before uh, issuing a fine. But I think, you know, for, for the most part, a lot of this is pretty clear cut and it's really trying to eliminate behaviors that I would suggest that almost all Calgarians would think that, that are unacceptable in society. I would assume that, that most of this is going to be responding after the fact, responding to a complaint, and, and people can, can phone either 311 or the non-emergency uh, police line 266-1234. But, I mean, is it is it helpful to have, you know, cell phone video of these incidents? I mean, how, how is the enforcement side going to be handled in terms of what, what prompts some intervention here? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And, you know, because it is transient in nature, you know, you could have somebody saying something to somebody in passing. Um, again, it's on us to prove that somebody has committed an offense. We would be, in, in those cases, mostly collecting evidence through witness statements or um, statements from the victim. Um, people use cell phones, especially the younger generation, and, and uh, there is a possibility that some of that could be captured on, on uh, you know, somebody's camera on their cell phone, and, of course, that could be used as evidence. And I think there's some environments that probably lend themselves to more types of harassment, <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, maybe perhaps outside of a party tent at the Stampede, where we might have a peace officer, or a police officer present. That if they observe something, then we can obviously take action based on um, whatever the officer finds. All right. Well, this takes effect today. More at uh, Calgary.ca. Brian, thanks for making some time for us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. Take care. Uh, Ryan Placatus is the uh, chief bylaw officer with Calgary Community Standards. So, kind of an overview of how this is going to work. Again, ultimately, this was City Council's decision. Uh, to make this change. So it wasn't uh, Ryan who decided this is, is going to be put into place. Obviously, it's their job to, to go out and enforce uh, what's passed by city council. So does this make sense? Do we need this? How is this all going to work in practice? I think the idea, you know, that, that you shouldn't do this to other people. I think people can get behind that. But in terms of having this kind of a bylaw, this kind of a... You know, an intervention by bylaw officers, what was said, what did they mean, here's a $500 ticket, I don't know, are you comfortable with that? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.